The following episode of the 9pm edict contains strong language, disinformation, adult themes, and questionable questions. Thursday the 1st of April 2021, the Autumn Series continues with another trip down the Wombat Warren of Internet Weirdness. And this time my special guest is Elise Thomas. She's a freelance journalist and open source intelligence analyst with the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. We'll be talking about all manner of online disinformation from the best known, like Russia's election interference, to others that get less coverage, like Turkey. Turkey has these these enormous bot armies, which are incredibly active and are hugely undercovered. We'll ask, Who's the most sneaky? You know, who is the best at being sneaky? It's probably not the person who is best known for being sneaky, because it's kind of a contradiction. And what about our own people? I I don't doubt that there is a lot going on that we do not know about. This is the 9pm April Fool's Disinformation Dialogue with Elise Thomas. Some thought it was an early April Fool's joke, but Volkswagen is apparently about to change its name, at least in the US. There it will soon be known as Volkswagen, that's volts as in electricity. The new name takes effect in May and is intended to flag VW's big move into electric cars. All EVs in the US will have Volkswagen badging on the rear. Conventionally powered cars will just have the VW emblem. New exterior and interior signs will soon appear on all the company's US properties. So that story is from Reuters, right? One of the world's largest and most trusted news agencies. And and yes, as he said, some people did think that VW's announcement was an April Fool's hoax. Uh, Because it was. (laughs) Whoops. So before I chat with Elise, I want to say a couple of things about April Fool's Day. Uh, this is this is now a controversial opinion, it seems. I like it. I love me a good hoax, whether it's on the 1st of April or some other time. Now, okay, the Volkswagen thing didn't go down so well because even some business publications like Forbes, as well as Reuters and others, got fooled. AAP uh, reported, the Australian Associated Press, Uh, said that at least one analyst wrote a research note praising the name change. And then on the share market, uh, VW's preferred shares closed 4.7% higher and ordinary shares 10.3% up. Oh, God. Yeah, so whatever you do, don't upset the people with the money, right? A bloke called uh, James Cox teaches corporate and security law Uh, corporate and securities law, I should say, at Duke University in the US. He said the US Securities and Exchange Commission should take action. The whole market has gone crazy, he said. We need to throw a pretty clear line in the sand, I believe, about what is permissible and what isn't permissible. Or maybe draw a line in the sand rather than throw it. I think this is pissingly funny, but then I... I think that's just because I'm enjoying the schadenfreude of people buying shares at 5 or 10% above the odds, based on not a lot, really. Bit of a name change. 
Really? And I know some people are going to say, oh, what about the mum and dad investors? Wah, 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 yeah. Look at, am I a bad person for not caring? I mean, maybe. And maybe the thing about April Fool's is that it's about harming people. Now, okay, maybe, maybe you know, spending money and then losing 10% of it because you bought the shares at an inflated price. That hurts, but it's only money. Uh, Sydney Trains had a, a joke today about a horse loose on their network. Oh, kind of amusing, horse, picture of a horse trying to get on a train. It was obviously a joke because there were lots of really bad horse puns about neighbouring stations, and the horse's name was April. I mean, a nice little joke. And and then you can kind of say, what, you believe that that was obviously a joke. I don't think that does really any harm. I think it teaches people to, to you know, just process information a bit before you just go off and and and, and act upon it. I mean, one of the, the classic April Fool's jokes in the media uh, was, of course, the famous one the BBC did way back in 1957 uh, about the Swiss spaghetti harvest. It isn't only in Britain that spring this year has taken everyone by surprise. Here, in the Ticino, on the borders of Switzerland and Italy, the slopes overlooking Lake Lugano have already burst into flower, at least a fortnight earlier than usual. But what, you may ask, has the early and welcome arrival of bees and blossom to do with food? Well, it's simply that the past winter, one of the mildest in living memory, has had its effect in other ways as well. Most important of all, it's resulted in an exceptionally heavy spaghetti crop. The last two weeks of March are an anxious time for the spaghetti farmer. There's always the chance of a late frost, which, while not entirely ruining the crop, generally impairs the flavour and makes it difficult for him to obtain top prices in world markets. But now these dangers are over and the spaghetti harvest goes forward. Spaghetti cultivation here in Switzerland is not, of course, carried out on anything like the tremendous scale of the Italian industry. Many of you, I'm sure, will have seen pictures of the vast spaghetti plantations in the Po Valley. For the Swiss, however, it tends to be more of a family affair. Another reason why this may be a bumper year lies in the virtual disappearance of the spaghetti weevil, the tiny creature whose depredations have caused much concern in the past. After picking, the spaghetti is laid out to dry in the warm alpine sun. Many people are often puzzled by the fact that spaghetti is produced at such uniform length. But this is the result of many years of patient endeavour by plant breeders who've succeeded in producing the perfect spaghetti. And now the harvest is marked by a traditional meal. Toasts to the new crop are drunk in these poccolinos. And then the waiters enter bearing the ceremonial dish. And it is, of course, spaghetti. Picked earlier in the day, dried in the sun, and so brought fresh from garden to table at the very peak of condition. For those who love this dish, there's nothing like real homegrown spaghetti. The thing to remember 
is that back in 1957 in the UK, spaghetti was only just beginning to be known to, you know, the ordinary folk. And, and a nice little light story about the spaghetti harvest. Uh, I mean, the only real damage was that the BBC telephone switchboard and the people who opened the mail, you know, written letters, had to kind of reply to people who'd ask, hey, do you have any tips for how to grow spaghetti in, in the home garden? And it's kind of a bit of amusing, and down at the pub someone would just say, you goose, spaghetti is made of flour and water. It's not a plant. Uh, in the 1960s in Australia, actually, the ABC uh, did a follow-up report, uh, one April Fool's, about the failure of, of the spaghetti harvest. Uh, and then they, of course, had people calling up to ask how they could donate money to uh, to help relieve the, the poverty of uh, spaghetti farmers. I think it's harmless. I have committed some media hoaxes myself, and I don't. I don't have audio grabs of them. Unfortunately, I think it's lost to history. My favourite uh, would have been about nineteen eighty-five. I think. When I was uh, first working for the ABC in Adelaide, I was producing the morning talk show that, uh, or I was the studio producer for it, that ran straight off the end of um, uh, AM on ABC Adelaide. And I, I put together a story about how due to continual allegations by politicians that the ABC was biased, that in future all news bulletins would be read by computer voice synthesis. Uh, because we all know it's very easy to imply uh, some sort of uh, mood by tone of voice. So I said, yeah, radio newsreaders, they're going to be out, done with computers. So I had someone to kind of talk about the technology. And at that stage, it was just the new uh, voice synth on Apple Mac computers, beginning in 95, first half, uh, 85, good God. Um, So I mocked up you know, one of the, the news bulletins from that morning uh, in voice synth. I think I had someone being, it might have been me, because I can't think of who else I might have got in. Uh, I had Alf Jarvis, who was the doyen of newsreaders, and everyone knew he was he was retiring soon. He came on to denounce the whole thing as, as, as just a complete loss of of. of Quality and what is the world coming to? Uh, he was so glad he's retiring, and I actually got the union rep on too to to complain about job losses. And then we just opened it up for talkback. Phone up, tell us what you think about computers reading the news. It was hilarious and harmless. Uh, I did another one um, back in the the eighties. There was a. Uh, I think SAFM was the Osterio FM station, you know, the, the rock music station. And uh, they had their Sky show on, I think, Australia Day each year, you know, big um, fireworks display synchronised to, to rock music. So the day before, uh, we on the nighttime program just started doing a whole, you know, getting ready, coming up at 9 o'clock, the, uh, the ABC Sky show. Uh, and we had crosses to allegedly me up on the roof uh, giving giving hints to where people could come near the ABC and find a parking spot in nearby streets. It was just 
me in another studio with a, a background, uh, you know, ambient sound tape and a street directory open in front of me. Remember, like, if you're young, a street directory is like a printout of Google Maps. Um, and and yes, we, we built up to that little whole thing and then at nine o'clock, here we go, and we had the sound of a single fireworks rocket going up and going, and like, the gag was, that's it. Well, yeah, what do you expect for the ABC on eight cents a day? However, the security people did tell me that that people had been driving around looking for like a spot for a view and not understanding why there was no one else around. And I did hear, I think it was the police told me that people had driven up to Mount Lofty, the hill overlooking Adelaide. <laughs> Mount Lofty, I think it. That's a troll, a sort of nineteenth-century troll name. Uh, you know, they people had driven up and had a few bongs and uh, to watch the fireworks, which of course never happen. Is that harming people? Is not realizing that the ABC Sky Show is not a thing, particularly if you hadn't heard about it before? I don't know. I thought that was a lot of fun. As I say, um, I think people need to to think about things a bit more. And uh, is it arrogant of me? Is it arrogant of me? Is it elitist of me to think that people should should think a bit? I don't know. Anyway, hello, I'm Stilgarian. Welcome to the Edict. <laughs> My special guest this episode is Elise Thomas. Elise, welcome. And I'm yeah, thank you for guessing me. that for most normal people, uh, the whole topic of online disinformation first surfaced for them. Uh, in 2016, with the Russian interference in the American election campaign and all of that. And look, we'll get to that in a moment. But, but looking back for the start, where should we really look to find the start of online disinformation? Uh, I would say with the start of the internet. Um, it's not like disinformation is not a, a new thing. It's It's been a constant part of, of societies throughout history. Um, and actually the, the long history of disinformation is super, super interesting. So, I, I mean, it, I guess it started with the internet. Okay. <laughs> As did so many things. Now, the word itself, disinformation, comes from the Russian word, doesn't it? Uh, Desinformatsia, which I probably pronounced incorrectly. As I've kind of grown up, I've always had the feeling that the Russians are the masters of this. Is this really the case? Um, I mean, I guess that's the that's always the question with any kind of covert activity. It's like, you know, who is the best at being sneaky? It's probably not the person who is best known for being sneaky because it's kind of a contradiction. Um, so it's hard to say ah. who is the best at disinformation because sort of by definition you probably wouldn't know who is the best. <laughs> right, but certainly, yeah, well, we've got this this Russian focus of, uh, of things in the US election campaign. Looking back at that, what do you notice as being the really key features of that? Um, I, I think the really key feature or the thing that sticks out to me about that whole discussion around Russian interference in the 2016 election is that the the impact of like the meta conversation about disinformation has been vastly greater than the impact of that actual campaign. Um, so sort of all of the attempts to measure the impact of that interference 
suggests that there was little, if any, meaningful impact on voters or on the voting. Um, but we've now spent four going on five years obsessively talking about this one disinformation campaign. It has roiled American politics, American society, and and internationally. Um, so the, in some ways, I guess the 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 message from that is that conversations about disinformation are often much more impactful than the actual disinformation itself. So how has that unfolded in the case of America then? Uh, the Mueller investigation was, I mean, obviously there were other things contributing to that, but, you know, like the, the increase of division in American society, the sort of tendency to, um, if you look at some of like the, the online discourse, for example, like anybody who disagrees with me is a Russian bot, the sort of the tendency to to, um, huh. to see to, to make it sound as though Russia is, you know, 10 feet tall um, and Vladimir Putin is a, you know, indefatigable mastermind. Um, it, it's fed into like a broader discourse about the US and about Russia, um, which has yeah, contributed to, I think, a deepening division in, in US society. Um, so if I, were, if I were the people who were behind that, that campaign in 2016 um, and were looking back at it sort of, four or five years down the track, I'd be pretty pleased, even though it, it had little impact on the actual election, but it certainly caused a ton of disruption and division within the US. Um, and if that was your goal, then job well done. <laughs> well, yes, I'm, I'm even thinking uh, on the weekend that's that's just gone, uh, the, the Nine Network in Australia, the television network, uh, was disrupted somehow by some sort of cyber operation. And, and as we record this, we still don't really know. But Carl Stefanovic on air immediately quipped, oh, well, we've got to get Vlad out of our computers. I mean, we do now see Russia as this enormously powerful beast. But on one side, I mean, we do have the fact that that Russia was interfering at elections, the Brexit vote, uh, EU elections, uh, and is still being pinged to this day for uh, poking around in other election-related or uh, political uh, or, shall we say, government computer systems. But then the other side, we do have China. We do have Iran. Who who, who are the major players here and, and what do we know about what they've been doing? Um, I mean, so I guess one of the things to know about uh, disinformation research is that it is governed by a lot of forces which are not just linked to um, the prevalence of disinformation itself. Um, so a lot of the organisations who do research in this space um, are dependent on project-based funding. Um, so some of the research projects that are done are driven by what funding is available rather than what is necessarily um, taking place across the spectrum. And so that means that there are a huge number of right. nation state actors who are wildly undercovered given what they do. Um, so number one, I would put number one on that list, Turkey. Turkey has these, these enormous bot armies which are incredibly active and are hugely undercovered because there's just there's just very little funding um, to, to look into Turkey and also because um, it's not something that drives uh, – and the other part of this obviously is, is the media cycle. So if you look at the media cycle in the US, the UK, Australia, um, and I've tried to do this as like a freelance journalist. It's very difficult to pitch editors on stories about, um, you know, internet manipulation in Turkey. Um, they're just not interested. Um, but they are huge players. Um, Pakistan, also right up there. Um, Azerbaijan and Armenia was a super interesting conflict because you had this um, this sort of shadow online war um, between, between Azerbaijani bots and Armenian bots. Super interesting as well. Um, I wrote a, a uh, my colleague Albert Zhang and I, when I was working at Aspie, wrote a report on that. 
Um, but it was really, really fascinating just to be able to look into some of those dynamics. Um, and we, we are seeing this take place across a huge range of conflicts where like every time there is a conflict breakout, you see this kind of shadow war taking place online, which is often very undercovered and has significant ramifications because um, particularly in conflicts where, and particularly now in COVID, where it's difficult to get journalists out to cover these conflicts on the ground, a lot of conflict reporting is actually based on social media. And so if you can distort the picture on social media, you have a pretty significant chance at skewing international media coverage of a particular conflict. Um, And that in turn affects the conflict on the ground in terms of resources and support. So is there a particular example you could you could talk through of the kinds of things that are, are being distorted? So, I mean, I guess the goal of this kind of like uh, information manipulation, particularly, and it's particularly striking when it takes place in English, um, in countries where neither of the parties to the conflict speak English, because that clearly is aimed at influencing English-speaking audiences and particularly the international media. And if you can influence international media coverage, you influence, for example, the kind of media coverage and reports that are being seen by policymakers in places like the EU, in Washington, um, the people who make serious decisions about foreign policy. Um, and so it's, you know, it's obviously it's it's an indirect way of doing it. But if you can sort of uh, skew the media coverage in a way which is favourable to your side, that could uh, advantage your side further down the track in terms of the actual like, geopolitical reactions of the rest of the world to the conflict. So there, there is a lot of value in in being able to do that. It strikes me, therefore, that news media in Western countries, in English-speaking countries, is going to be particularly vulnerable to that sort of information, specifically because they don't speak Turkish or speak Russian or whatever it might be. And particularly when you think about, like, um, one of the questions that, that comes up sometimes people ask, like, what is the point of running um, an influence operation on a platform like Twitter? where you have only, um, in, in some communities anyway, like use, Twitter usage differs across different, um, different countries in terms of like who the demographics of who is on the platform. Um, but, you know, the, the question of sort of why you would run an influence operation on Twitter when only a, a very small proportion of the population and a very like um, a, a specific demographic of the population tends to be on Twitter. Um, and my answer to that is generally speaking, the goal is to get to the media. Because who is on Twitter? Journalists. Journalists love Twitter. Um, so if you if you want to run an influence campaign where you're trying to influence the broader population, in most countries you would go to Facebook. But if the goal is to influence the media, you'd go to Twitter. Which comes to the question of attribution, really. Uh, I mean, if you don't speak the underlying language, if you if you're a journalist trying very quickly to understand a situation, first you've got to realise that maybe you're being duped. But then the next step is you've got to figure out who and why. Attribution in the cyber realm, I mean, it, it's generally seen as being difficult. Is that the case with disinformation operations? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, it is very difficult to make reliable attributions. Um, and it is, it is very analogous to cyber um, in that you sort of often have to work off like TTPs rather than having sort of sometimes you can make a direct link to a to an individual occasionally you can do that so um ben strick who is a an amazing um, open source investigator and i did a piece um, looking at uh disinformation about west papua and we're able to track that back to a specific communications consultancy in indonesia 
Um, but then obviously we're not able to make the, the link to their client. Someone has paid them to do this. They paid them to sort of put out this disinformation campaign promoting a pro-Indonesian government view of the, the situation in West Papua, but we are not able to make the additional link to whoever, putting this in air quotes, whoever may have paid them to promote this pro-Indonesian view of the, the conflict. Um, so it's, 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 it's a similar sort of thing. It's, it's really difficult to, to a similar sort of thing to what happens in the cyber realm. So we're presumably seeing the same sorts of disinformation coming, not just uh, from cutouts for nation states, but cutouts, say, for the oil industry or anybody who wants to influence public policy. Yeah, well, and this is a super interesting area and it does come back a little bit to what I was saying before about the the ways in which um, the current kind of funding model skews uh, disinformation research and that there just hasn't been a tonne of research to this point on how those big industries, particularly like the, um, you know, the fossil fuels industries, which have extremely strong commercial interests in, again, like exercising their own forms of influence operations. And we can discuss, like, I guess, where, like, there's always a blurry grey line between advertising, marketing, influence, because advertising and marketing are obviously also influence operations, but they're overt. Like, you you know that you're being sold something. uh, but yeah, like there hasn't been a lot of research into how that's working, how like corporate disinformation operates. Um, and I'm super excited for, for us to reach the point where we where we are able to start doing some of that kind of research because I'm very suspicious. <laughs> now, I, I saw you'd done a, a thing recently with the Carnegie Endowment for um, International Peace on attribution. I haven't had a chance to, to watch the video yet, uh, but what sorts of issues came up in that conversation uh, about the, the problems of attribution? Um, I guess we sort of talked a lot about uh, it's I'm trying to think back because I did do it at 1 a.m. Australia time. Um, so it's all a little <laughs> bit of a blur. Oh, yes, um, yes. But, um, uh, but we, we talk, I guess talked about um, trying to do responsible attribution. Um, what can go wrong if you if you make the wrong attribution? Um, sort of how to handle um how to handle the different roles in attribution. So, for example, if you have, if you as a journalist make an attribution that's different from you as a researcher, it's definitely different from you as like a government agency or a government actor. Um, that there, that all of these actors who are making attributions have different incentives, different capabilities, different constraints, um, and all of that sort of um, is something that you should think about when looking at attribution of any like particular campaign. I guess the other thing we talked about is how attribution is becoming very politicized. Um, so you will have sort of people with a political motive running out and saying, oh, this was China. Oh, this was Russia. Oh, this was, you know, like, or oh, oh, this was my political mm. opponent. Um, and and sort of how you deal with with issues like that, um, you know, in a, in a way that has sort of <laughs> integrity and, and uh, research rigour. <laughs> yes, uh, indeed, it takes quite a bit for a nation state officially to have its foreign minister or someone uh, actually call out another country for a cyber operation. Uh, and indeed, I've written about that in, in the past, and I'll chuck a, a link on the website. Anyway, uh, let's take a quick break and do the housekeeping. This episode uh, brings us up to, or will bring us up to, halfway through the Autumn Series 2021. Still to come... 
and I'm not sure of the order here because we need to juggle timings, but uh, blockchain and cryptocurrency realist, as I'm calling him, David Gerard. He's author of uh, the book Attack of the 50-Foot Blockchain, which I've read, and it's a fantastic backgrounder. Very funny, too. And Libra Shrugged, How Facebook Tried to Take Over the Money the money. Haven't read that one yet, but I will uh, soon. David Gerard, he's coming up. And also two of, of my favourite cartoonists, Kathy Wilcox, who's been on the pod before, and uh, well, back in 2016, five years ago. Wow. And John Kadelka from uh, Snake Ridden Tasmania. I'm really looking forward to that chat. So they're all coming up uh, this month in April, before the end of the month in April. If you are a supporter of the pod and have trigger words or a conversation topic you'd like to throw at any of those people, do let me know. I will email you once I have the dates um, and so on, which I'll work out uh, next week, I think, once Easter's out of the way. Uh, and as you know, speaking of support, this this podcast is made possible by you, dear generous listener, by you personally. So think about your role here. You can make more of these possible. And uh, this episode, uh, it is, of course, thank you to all the people who contributed to the 9pm Autumn series. Uh, You're all listed on the website. I'll give some call-outs to some of you specifically uh, next episode. Uh, It's also thanks to Errol Cavett, whose uh, subscription uh, came up for renewal this month. Thank you, sir, for your generosity. If you'd like to join these people... And quite frankly, please do so, because for a number of reasons, uh, my income during March was way uh, below uh, targets because I was doing a whole uh, readjust my meds and didn't do anywhere near as much writing as I should have. But that's you know where we're up to. Uh, if you would like to join these people, uh, please go to the 9pmedic.com slash tip, the 9pmedic.com slash tip. There's a link through there to subscribe to get trigger words and, and things like that. Uh, you should know the drill by now, but as I say, this would be a really good month to do that sort of thing. The 9pmedic.com slash tip. Elise Thomas, one of the, the, one of the many things that fascinates uh, me about disinformation is, of course, that we hear about what other people are doing but we don't necessarily hear about what uh, our friends in the five eyes, our own nations are doing in this realm. I mean, we know this historically, and, and I've linked to a couple of things. One is, you know, back when when things were weird in Central America in the in the 1970s, uh, the CIA actually hired an actor and two radio DJs to kind of run a whole fake news radio station. And uh, they they did the same with newspapers. And, in fact, I've linked to a, a paper about that. The paper was uh, in 1982 called CIA Psychological Warfare Operations in Nicaragua, Chile and Jamaica. I mean, what, what do we know? about what is being done, uh, for want of a better word, by by our side? Um, look, I mean, I, I guess it's tricky because, I mean, well, just just on the reporting piece, I'd, I'd point out that we, we also don't hear a lot about, um, we don't see, you know, fire eye reports about the NSA's 
various escapades either. Um, so, you know, they're, they're obviously like, yeah, there <laughs> no. are elements of that. Um, but, I mean, I, I also do get the sense, and I, I don't have any insider information on this, um, I, I do get the sense that it is less prevalent um, in in democracies because there is, uh, I, I think there is much more wariness about sort of dipping a toe into this because it gets out of hand very quickly. Uh, and also, and also, like the, maybe there's more concern about like if it is uncovered, um, the reputational damage to a democracy might be might be quite significant, as opposed to um, you know like it gets uncovered and like a, a Russian information is uncovered, and I don't think Putin is losing any sleep over it. Um, but yeah, like I, I, I don't doubt that there is a lot going on that we do not know about. A few, uh, well, a few weeks ago now, uh, back in November, Sexenheimer, Cam Smith was on the pod uh, back in November talking about QAnon, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, one that people know even more about now. What has changed in, well, first of all, I say, how does QAnon fit into this? And then I think, how has it changed since Trump is no longer president of the United States, except in the minds of QAnon? So I guess the hard thing is that the QAnon community is very big and it's very diverse. You have a lot of different demographics within QAnon. So the QAnon's on the QAnon followers on Facebook, um, and there are still QAnon followers on Facebook despite the crackdown. Um, they are different in a like, fun, like they are different demographics. They are different. They hold different some different beliefs from like from the QAnons who are on like Acorn, which is where Q used to post, has not posted now since December. Um, and so I think. Um, they are reacting in slightly different ways to to Trump losing the election and also to the fact that Q seems to have abandoned them. Um, we haven't seen a post from Q in, like I said, since since December. Um, and so, but I would say, like across the spectrum, they just seem a bit lost. Like they're they're still there. It's it's a smaller movement now than it was, um, and they're still you know keeping the hope alive, trying to sort of latch on to various bits and pieces, carrying on, carrying on. Um, and I guess the big question for QAnon now is whether um, they are whether QAnon proper is able to latch on to something else um, to give itself some other kind of you know driving mission and uh, re- remain sort of as a kind of a singular conspiracy theory, or whether it disintegrates and evolves into a bunch of other different conspiracy theories. Um, I'd guess probably more likely the latter, unless unless the person posting as Q returns and continues posting mm. uh, because that was the device that really held the structure of that community together. Um, but, you know, it, it, it is a wait and see. Now, we also had in Australia in particular the, the both the bushfires and COVID-19, um, uh, well, last year. Um, what were the standouts for you in that particular realm of disinformation? I mean, we, we joke about bushfires being started by Jewish space lasers, um, but, you know, there were some real concerns in all of that. The really interesting thing about the, the disinformation that we saw around the bushfires uh, at the start of last year was the ways in which um, it actually echoed and reflected some of the disinformation that we've seen around the California wildfires um, from a few years back. Um, so, for example, some like very specific conspiracy theories about the fires having been started to um, clear land for a rail, a rail line. Um, we saw that in California, and then a few years later, we saw it in, saw it in Australia. Um, I think then it moved back to California. I, I think it really like sort of emphasizes that these conspiracy theories move around because we're all operating in the same information space, even if we are on the other side of the planet. Um, so that that was super super interesting. 
And then COVID rolled out. That has been such an enormous uh, field uh, for everything. Well, it, it seems to have brought together a whole lot of um, anti-China conspiracies, anti-vax conspiracies, uh, government control conspiracies. What stands out there? Um, so I, I wrote a piece for Foreign Policy early last year where I talked about a concept that I was calling conspiracy collapse, which is the idea that, um, so, so, and it's sort of built off the idea of context collapse on social media. So context collapse is a, an experience I'm sure a lot of people have had. It's where you post something on Facebook, like maybe a slightly inappropriate joke that you're sort of aiming at your friends and your grandmother likes it or your grandmother does not like it and replies to tell you that she doesn't like it. Uh, it's that, that idea where you're messaging to one audience, but because we are all operating on the same platforms in the same information spaces, other audiences see it and they it all kind of collapses in together. Um, and so that, I think, is a, is, is a pretty good reflection of what happened at the start of the COVID crisis in that uh, COVID supercharged conspiracy theories because conspiracy theories are sort of innately linked to mental health um, and sort of relate to it. Like when people are stressed, when they are, um, you know, dealing with uh, psychological and emotional pressures, financial pressures, life pressures, they are more vulnerable to falling into conspiracy theories. And so around about March last year, we just saw... Uh, an enormous surge in conspiracy activity. Um, and we saw a bunch of conspiracies um, both all become like much larger at the same time, but also start to cross propagate because they were all operating, a lot of them were operating on the same hashtags. So for example, you would go to Twitter um, and someone would have like a QAnon conspiracy um, and, you know, they would have, you know, hashtag pandemic or whatever. And then someone else would have like a new world order conspiracy theory and also use the hashtag pandemic. And if you are, uh, uh, you know, a person coming or like hashtag COVID hoax or, you know, a, a range of other hashtags that were being used by a bunch of different conspiracy theories. And so if you are a person coming new to those conspiracy theories and you're just looking at that hashtag, you're just scrolling through, scrolling through, scrolling through, you might see 15 different conspiracy theories, but you don't know that they're different conspiracy theories. Like for you, it's all part of one thing and it all gets mashed up into your like personal conspiratorial belief system. Um, and that's why we've ended up with this kind of weird like cross-propagation mashup of a bunch of different conspiracy theories all squished in together. Now, you have uh, recently started working with the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. Who are they? Who are you? Uh, um, I like how you let me get all the way through this interview before asking me who I am. Uh, I feel like they should probably... <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, um, the Institute for Strategic Dialogue is a counter-extremism think tank based largely out of the UK with um, uh, also some people in the US. There's me in Australia. There's um, my colleague in Canada. Uh, yeah, you can visit, visit the website at isdglobal.org if you would like to learn more about ISD. <laughs> And as usual, uh, I remind everyone who listens to this podcast, they know this, but all the links to all the things we mentioned are at the 9pmedic.com. Finally then, Elise, do you ever see a disinformation campaign and think, just hats off, that is really, really clever? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like you, I, I think, you know, you're doing this kind of work, you've got to respect the intelligence of the people who are behind it. In some cases, um, there are there are other cases where you see things you think that is so lazy, so lazy. Um, <laughs> so, um, I, I, I like, like genuinely. What? Oh, so we, we did. Um, so when I was working at Aspie last year, we did a, a couple of 
investigations into Chinese linked um, disinformation, um, and some of some of the work on that was just extremely shoddy. Extremely shoddy. Like they just done this really lazy thing where, like, rather than because they're, they're, they're like building graphics, um, and rather than exporting their graphics into like actual JPEG files, which I like assume would have been taking more time, they would screenshot their like things like in whatever like image browser they were using you can still see the anchor points on like where they've been like changing the sizes of images and stuff lazy lazy um (laughs) (laughs) but the good stuff i i I, to be honest i i do come back to the like i know it's it's a boring example but i do come back to the 2016 election which has been like inadvertently enormously successful because i i do think that um like the the conversation that was sparked as a result of that campaign, like it wasn't what they were aiming to do, I assume, but the fact that they were busted and then it was still enormously successful at disrupting, you know, US society, driving in huge divisions um, for years, like amazing, Uh, like not in a good way, but like very like, you know, yeah, like I said earlier, I, I think those people are probably very pleased with themselves. And, and I think as, as some people have said on, really quite a uh, remarkably small budget. Yeah, exactly. Real value for money there. (laughs) Well, uh, this conversation too has been really good value for money, given that you're not being paid. Elise Thomas, thanks so (laughs) much for your time. Yeah, no worries. Thank you. That's the edict for now. Obviously, everything's at the9pmedict.com. You need to do the like, subscribe, send money things. Yes, very, very do that this month. Uh, The next episode will be in about two weeks from now. Until then, I'm Stilgarian. Wash your hands. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.